0: You can lock like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FTBP stand for free the Black Panthers, F up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership rose, but we still here in the build head of Pro. show, they got me started, lion hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. I'm all about Umoja First in rules Usaba Let's bring back the black families We need our father Single mama Son and daughter That's root of the problem Wise up We rise up Unity so powerful Black banks Black schools Black on black power moves You tell a lot. Think this shit gon' be televised? Black power, be scared guys That be standing there like they paralyzed huh? We safe for the system Cause we above the system We keep ARs and pistols Shotguns, that's worth to crystal But that's for self-defense Make sure we have no issues Be sure to leave it at the door If you have it with you This for them freedom fighters That lost their freedom Until they freedom We screamin' carpe diem Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck me, i Free the Black Panthers, F B B P. Stand for Free the Black Panthers And fuck the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not to ever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers, F B B P. Stand for Free the Black Panthers And fuck the Black Police demonstrated our movement for black leadership roles. But we still heads in the bill here, upcoin pro RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the counselor, the elders, t- that's really all I need We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fall for misogyny Bullshit stuff, don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it But i up thump, another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated Damn, unify or die, nbpp.org our people, to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that.
1: We need our own nation. I thank the gentlemen. Uh, it is clear that there is a new day on the Committee of Ed and Labor. And that committee, led by Chairman Scott, has shown itself to be the People's Committee. And I'm delighted that his longstanding membership with the Congressional Black Caucus has shown that His work is for all of America, but through the Congressional Black Caucus, he has helped and elevated families who have suffered uh, because of racial discrimination, because of uh, economic uh, inequities. He has been focused, and certainly I want to credit him again with the work that has been done on HBCUs. I can assure you with HBCUs in Texas, everywhere I go, they are taking note of the increased funding that has allowed them to do issues or handle matters with physical infrastructure, um, scholarship, uh, the new Pell Grant, uh, I needed to add that, the new Pell Grant uh, executive order, student loan executive order that is allowed for those uh, with Pell Grant loans uh, to um, make $120,000 to get uh, $20,000 of relief. The Congressional Black Caucus worked extensively to ensure that those people with student loans were not forgotten. Let me say it again. We work without ceasing to ensure uh, that individuals who were overburdened uh, with student loans couldn't get uh, down payments for, for housing and, and other matters for their quality of life. We were ensuring uh, that, um, uh, that we were in the front, if you will, to continue to advocate uh, for student loan reduction. Let me just say this as I uh, prepare to uh, yield to my uh, dear friend uh, on the floor here. As the poet Langston Hughes reminds us in his famous poem, Mother to Son, that life in America for African-Americans ain't been no crystal there. And what I would say is that the goodness of this message is that in spite of it all, African-Americans have put on uniforms and fought their battles on behalf of this nation. African-Americans are great lovers of this country and they're great patriots. African Americans have worked in every level of government. Uh, They have, of course, uh, been individuals that have worked, as some would say, at the bottom of the totem pole, uh, meaning every manner of work uh, they have done. And they have been African Americans who were enslaved, who helped build the White House and the very building that we're in. Never to hold the anger of their station in life, but continue to work uh, to insist on a better quality of life for their families. So it is uh, very much uh, important to take note of the bills that we have been able to do as individual members of Congress. And so I'm just going to cite H.R. 7566, Stops Human Trafficking in Schools, that I introduced. And then, of course, uh, working with uh, an amendment to the Workforce Innovation, ensuring HBCUs full access to job skills training. Amendment to H.R. 8294, the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development Appropriations Bill, to ensure that uh, HBCUs uh, had um, Pacific work. It supports the work of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture by increasing the funding uh, by $2 million. And then I want to finish more deeply on the H.R. 40. Um, And that bill is much exhibited, as I've been on the floor before, with this slave and his back and the whips the welts on his back from a whip this was the life of slavery in america and i just read uh, recently of germany's response to aging holocaust victims which i applaud providing millions of dollars to respond to their pain just recently and so in the Course of the commission uh, to uh, study slavery and develop reparation proposals, it will give America a moment of healing. We've been hearing this discussion across the nation and across the world, most recently, of course, uh, in uh, the uh, halls or the uh, places uh, in Great Britain. But for America to take that stand, that the discussion is worthy, that the study is worthy, that the idea of what kind of proposals would come about, what inclusive ways will we deal with the recognition of over two centuries of slavery, unpaid, no insurance, no workman's comp, no days off, from sunup to darkness, beat by the whip, as the slave narratives in 1939 told us. The stories are powerful, ripped away from our families, made families, husband and wife and children. And then you would hear the pleas in the slave narratives when they say, come home, husband. They're about to sell me and the children in different ways, in different places. It happened to slaves all the time. I was honored and humbled to meet the survivors of the Wall Street Massacre. It happened in 1921. Those people were, in actuality, some even former slaves, but mostly descendants of the most recent people who were slaves. The most recent, their, their ancestors or their, their mother might have been a slave, but they built a Wall Street, but yet it could not uh, survive because of racism and discrimination. So to heal our land, the Congressional Black Caucus has worked in many ways to heal our land, and I'm grateful of their advocacy for just a fair and simple study and assessment of what we should do to repair what occurred two centuries and continues even today. Well, okay. The story is long about the inequities of the GI Bill, redlining, uh, the discrimination in voting, in the criminal justice system, uh, the basis of wealth so distinctive between other populations in this country. So I want to thank the Congressional Black Caucus for the extensive legislative history uh, that it has had over the 117th Congress. And it really is my privilege, Madam Speaker, to yield the remaining of my time uh, to speak about the accomplishments of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, to uh, our dear colleague and friend uh, who has shown himself a leader, and that is Congressman Troy Carter of Louisiana.
2: We just saw in that package that you have strong feelings about how the debt of reparations should be paid. You feel like it should be land. Yeah. Why I, do you feel like that's the answer? I think it's a culmination of things, but I think that if, you, if you're not asking for land um, as a big part of that, that maybe you're off course. If, if Bill Gates, who makes all his money off microchips and computers, is now trying to be the largest land in the United States, you know, if you want a good sense of where to find some food, follow a hungry dog. You know, if, 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 if Gates is won't land. Why aren't we 54% of all African Americans live in the South? We know we were enslaved here. We know we built the economy of the South. We know we were the cornerstone of the South, said by Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, who Stevens County is named for, said the cornerstone of the Confederacy is enslaved. So since the cornerstone of building this took us working for free, we deserve something. And what we deserve is land, and we deserve land grants like Dr. King asked for. We deserve to have government contracts that were 100 years in perpetuity for that land. So if corn needs to be grown, we should be granted the land. We should be given the contract to grow the corn. Why does that work? Because it keeps the dollar cycling not only in our community, but the greater community. I would like to walk out of this, because I know you don't solve all the problems here, but I'd like to walk out knowing that if we don't deserve anything else, we deserve land, we deserve money, we deserve education. And the only other thing is, there has been, and I've got to credit Yvette Cardinale for saying this, her and Moore, that without something in terms of purpose, without some money, without some political policy, without some change, then it all equals nothing. So we need to push the line locally like what's happening in California, because once one state breaks, they makes them break the bank, then it's easier to repeat, but if you're in Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Louisiana, Texas, you deserve your fair share of land. Mm. Uh, what about everybody else? Is, is, uh, y'all can give it up for that, of course. Yeah. What about everyone else? Are there any other thoughts, checks, land grants, uh, free education? What is everybody else? What's in your minds about how reparations should be meted out? Land is one aspect of it, in respect to my brother Mike. The thing is, we don't just want land because they'll do what they're doing in Mississippi. There's a bunch of people who live in a city, but then they'll taint the water. They will do certain things like they do on certain Indian reservations. They will pollute the creeks, things like that. So land is one option, but we need cash payments. And when we get the cash, we can buy whatever land we need.
3: I'll add, as an international human rights scholar, there's a legal definition for what reparations is. So under international law, reparations comes in five forms. So compensation or cash must be included because that's one of the forms of reparations under international law. But there's also restitution, and that accounts for stolen land, stolen labor, stolen property, real or intellectual. So that's relevant in the entertainment space in terms of the cultural contributions of African-Americans, right? The other form of reparations under international law is rehabilitation. So that can look like free medical care from, uh, from birth to death, free education, um, free legal and trauma services. Um, then there's satisfaction, which accounts for more symbolic forms of reparations, like a formal apology, the taking down of Confederate monuments and the erecting of statutes that honor our ancestors, for instance, and then the last or the fifth form of reparations under international law is guarantees of non-repetition, so that gets that more structural and institutional policy change. So my personal opinion is that you cannot call a reparations package reparations unless it includes all five of those forms. So it has to include cash, it has to include a check, it has to include restitution, it has to include rehabilitation, it has to include satisfaction, and it has to include guarantees of non-repetition.
4: With me
5: Once more.
6: I am an educator and an advocate and a poet and a parent of kids in the Los Angeles Unified School District, Um, and I've also had um, the blessing uh, to work with the California Reparations Task Force and several community-based organizations to hold listening sessions across the state of California to hear diverse black voices um, on the topic of reparations. And that's really how I got to know and work with the big hearts and the big team at OBI, Othering and Belonging Institute. Thank you for hosting us. Um, They held some really important dialogues um, in the Bay Area um, to really help inform the work, the priorities um, of the California Reparations Task Force, along with several other community-based organizations, some of whom I know are joining us today for this conversation. OBI envisions a world where everyone belongs, and not just in name, not just lip service. Everyone belongs, and we see that within our communities, within our systems, within our structures um, that really shape how we live and work and love, and that's locally, that's nationally, but that's also globally. You know, we are in a very defining moment. In uh, in the reparations movement, a long time coming moment um, that is um, a, a movement. Um, and uh, OBI leaders uh, Stephen Menendian, as well as John A. Powell, have given testimonies um, in support of reparations in the state of California. Jovan Scott Lewis, who is an OBI scholar and California Task force, Reparations Task Force member. Um, studies this topic, has written about it, spoken about it, um, and helped shape um, a lot of this work as well. Um, And and we've been listening to diverse black voices on the topic of reparations, Um, and so we know that there are diverse and there are differing views on the design of potential reparations policies. Some sharp disagreements that have emerged include specific harms to be remedied, who should qualify the form of reparations and the entity providing reparations. But I also wanna name that there has been tremendous unity um, in what we've been hearing. There has been unity in the types of systems and structures that have been the greatest perpetrators of anti-black racism, um, of exclusion, of oppression um, of black people in, in our state and certainly in our nation. And so today you're gonna to get to hear about that unity, you're gonna to get to hear themes and you're gonna to get to hear some nuances and some differing perspectives on the who and the how of reparations. Um, but before I introduce our panelists, I wanna share um, a few conversation norms that I'm asking our panelists um, and and our broader audience, right, when we, when we have a little um, Uh, chat conversation later to to hold um, in your hearts. The first is um, we want you to take, focus, and share the mic. Um, Our panelists are incredibly impressive. They have a lot to say on this topic, um, and they have that mighty challenge of being concise um, so that we get to hear from every single person because equality of voice is very, very important. Um, The second norm is we ask that you, especially when we get to the audience chat portion, honor diverse black voices, identities, and perspectives. You know, if you hear something that rubs you the wrong way, you can hold your truth, speak your truth, and still respect the perspectives of other black folks, other folks who are um, engaging in this conversation. So we ask that you do that. And then last, but perhaps most important, this is um, not just an event. This is not a one-off conversation. This is a movement um, that is long time coming. Um, And so we need to spread the word. We are going to need to um, bring in our aunties, our uncles, our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues into this conversation. And there'll be some resources um, that our team at OBI is gonna give us so that we can get more black voices weighing in on this conversation. So now I'm going to introduce our panelists. Um, The first panelist is Trevor Smith. Um, Trevor is the Director of Narrative Change at Liberation Ventures. Trevor is also a writer and a researcher and a strategist focused on racial inequality, wealth inequality, reparations, and narrative change. So welcome, Trevor. I also want to welcome Don Tamaki, who is an appointed California Reparations Task Force member, um, and also a partner at Minami Tamaki LLP. He's the co-founder of StopRepeatingHistory.org, which is a campaign focused on drawing parallels between the roundup of Japanese Americans during World War II, and the targeting of minority groups based on race and religion. Also want to welcome to Welcome Don. want to welcome Jean-Pierre Brutus, um, who is a senior counsel in the Economic Justice Program at the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, um, as well as a leader within the Say the Word campaign, say the word, working to establish a reparations task force in New Jersey. Welcome, Jean-Pierre. Also want to welcome Kelly Farish. Kelly is a professional genealogist and leader at Reparation Generation um, and an active advisory participant on California's AB 3121 um, and the Reparations Task Force um, concerning particularly um, reparations eligibility um, based on race or lineage. Wonderful to have you. Thank you, Kelly. Um, And last but certainly not least, David Meyer, who is the co-chair, founder, and leader at Reparation Generation, and the founder and president of Meyer Laboratories, which is a medical device company. Um, So those are our panelists. They are going to do a much better job than I just did to tell you more about what is animating their work, their passion, the perspective they are bringing to the reparations movement. So I actually want to go in this order. Um, And I'm asking all of our panelists to first introduce yourself, Um, you know, tell us a little bit more about the important aspects of your background that drive your passion and your work on reparations, and then I want you to tell us what are the most important legislative actions, excuse me, what are the most important uh, actions that you want legislative bodies, policymakers, and the general public to understand in terms of the why and the how of reparations. So what's important that you want us to understand? Let's start first with Don.
7: Thank you so much, AMA. And it's really a pleasure to be on this panel. And I want to thank the Other and Belonging Institute for all of its good work. I did attend um, some of the listening sessions that OBI, OBI operated and did a wonderful job. Uh, so why am I here and why am I on the task force? Um, I was deeply involved in the movement resulting in reparations for Japanese Americans in the 1980s. And while there is no equivalence between the rounding up of Japanese Americans into concentration camps and 250 years of enslavement, 90 years of Jim Crow, and decades more of de jure and de facto uh, exclusion suffered by African Americans, there are some lessons that might be helpful. Uh, moreover, there is a reason why AAPIs and other non-African-Americans need to support this movement. The racial hatred that resulted in the incarceration of Japanese-Americans, for example, is merely, I think, an offshoot of the racial hatred and bias that has impacted the African-American community for 400 years. Let me illustrate that point by juxtaposing two historical examples. Mm-hmm. It's, on its face, seemed to be unrelated. In 1943, 63-year-old James Wakasa was confined at Topaz Concentration Camp in Utah, along with Fred Korematsu, who is a litigant in the Supreme Court that 37 years later, after the court ruled against him, I represented to reopen his case. Uh, My mother and father were at uh, Topaz and about 10,000 other Americans. One evening, Wakasa took a stroll along the cap's camp's barbed wire perimeter. From 300 yards away, uh, a sentry atop a guard tower took aim and fired the bullet striking Wakasa in the chest and killing him. No inquest was held, and the guard was exonerated after claiming Wakasa was trying to escape. Two years later, in 1945, O'Day Short, his wife Helen, seven-year-old Carol Ann, and nine-year-old Barry, moved into the house they built in Fontana, California. Sheriffs warned Short they should go back to their black neighborhood. His real estate agent advised, vigilantes had a meeting here last night, and if I were you, I'd get my family out of here. Two weeks later, an explosion engulfed the house. Neighbors saw Helen try to beat down the flames, consuming her children. All family members died, the San Bernardino County District Attorney said it was an accident. The California Attorney General concluded no evidence of vigilante activity could be found in Fontana. Other than the fact that these events occurred within two years of each other, what ties them together? I would argue that the hate resulting in the deaths of James Wakasa and the Odell Short family has its origins in the racism that propped up the institution of slavery and its aftermath. Slavery has existed for thousands of years, but it was only in the past 400 to 500 years that white Europeans developed a type of enslavement based on skin color to justify permanent multi-generational subjugation upheld by a culture of white superiority. Once the culture of 1619 used race to dehumanize people to the level of pigs and goats, in the words of Martin Luther King, singifying them, then the most heinous crimes against humanity could follow without a second thought. Following the end of slavery, this cultural norm, valuing white lives above all others, morphed into forms of hate that put a target on the backs of not just African Americans, but other people of color, including James Wakasa. Simply put, if you can thingify black people, then demonizing other disfavored groups is easy. Slavery begat the cultural foundation of America's racial hierarchy, of white people on top, black people on the bottom, and everybody else in between. So while the charge for the California Reparations Task Force is to examine, study, and make recommendations pertaining to the African American community specifically, the movement involves issues that affect every American. And so uh, that's, I think, one of my driving motivations to be involved in this effort. Thank you.
4: Mm.
6: Thank you, Don. It's very clear sort of what is bringing you to to this work. Um, Jean-Pierre, tell us a little bit more about you and what, what drives your passion around this work Um, and what you think is something important that legislative policymakers and the general public need to understand about the why and the how of reparation.
8: So, thank you so much, Alma. And first, I want to say thank you to the Othering and Blogging Institute for having me, and thank you to the other panelists. Um, It's wonderful to be here, and it's an honor. Um, So, first, I just want to talk about the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, for those of you that don't know. and I should say good evening to those of you on the East Coast and also good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast. Um, The New Jersey Institute for Social Justice um, Institute is a cutting-edge racial and social justice advocacy organization that seeks to empower people of color by building reparative systems that create wealth, transform justice, and harness democratic power from the ground up in New Jersey. You can go to njisj.org to find out more about the Institute. Now, in regards to why I myself am involved in this work. So first, um, well, my upbringing and two about my training and, and my formal training and, my, and my, uh, my work. So first, I grew up in a Haitian household. I'm the child of Haitian immigrants. And as such, I learned about the Haitian Revolution. And as the scholar Michel Ruff-Truillot talks about in "Silencing the Past, at the moment in which the Haitian Revolution occurred, it was considered impossible. All right by by in flavors the importance and the reason why I bring up the Haitian Revolution is that it helped to inspire b- b- revolts slavery revolts throughout the Americas they had occurred prior to the Haitian Revolution but they also created a new energy of what was possible and it was also the beginning of the end of Atlantic slavery but with the ha- end of the Haitian Revolution um, the enslaved people who had fought for their freedom were forced to repay the masters reparations really um, went to the wrong people right and it fundamentally Cratered the Haitian economy and destabilized the country. That's one. Two. I've been formally trained in African American studies and law. I've had the good fortune of being trained by scholars who have taught me to think critically and deeply about race, about racism, about empire, about colonialism, about slavery here in the United States and throughout the Americas and throughout the Black diaspora. And so it's provided me with a different point of view, a different set of insights. It's given me Mm helped me to think deeply and thoughtfully about these issues. Now, in terms of the why and the how, what I would like legislators to think about reparations, I'll keep it to, in particular to New Jersey. I will point out that so many of you may, may not know that New Jersey was called the slave state of the North. That New Jersey was called, considered slave society. It was part and parcel of New Jersey. Another way of putting that is, slavery was mainstream in New Jersey, and now our work at the Institute as part of the, the work Coalition is to make reparations mainstream in New Jersey. And the how would be a reparations task force. So you know, California is leading the way with a reparations task force, but New Jersey was actually the first state to introduce a task force legislation in November of 2019. And so we are following, trying to follow in California's footsteps and the questions of eligibility, questions of what it would look like, those would be answered by a task force. And so we are organizing in New Jersey for a task force 19 of the 20 members of the Legislative Black Caucus are co-sponsoring it. We have a prime sponsor, the Senate Majority Leader, the second person in command in the Senate in New Jersey supports, the, is a co-sponsor of the bill. And so we would like the legislature, particularly the Senate President and the Assembly Speaker, to co-sponsor and support this bill and move this bill forward. It's been three years in New Jersey. It's, it's been, you know, much more time than California. It's now time to pass this bill. We're just asking for a conversation and for these legislators to say the word reparations and study the institution of slavery in New Jersey and also repair the harms of the aftermath of slavery in New Jersey. And so when we talk about the why and the, how, why and the how, we've got a legislative task force, we want to discuss you know, all the impacts that slavery has had. Many of you may not know this, right? When you think of New Jersey as being perhaps a progressive state or a prosperous state, there are essentially two New Jersey's, 300,000, that's the racial wealth gap in New Jersey, one of the largest in the country, almost double the national average. Um, in New Jersey, the median white family has a median wealth of 320500 and for black families, that's $17,100. The massive racial wealth gap, and also the maternity, the infant mortality rate in New Jersey is one of the highest. Um, it has a three to one ratio between white mothers and, 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 and black mothers. And so New Jersey has a lot of disparities um, that are overlooked because it's a north it's a northern state, and because people don't realize that slavery was endemic to New Jersey. So thank you very much.
6: Thank you, Jean Pierre. Um, that's sobering, and and I uh, can't <laughs> can't overstate enough how hard it has been for lots of folks, particularly non Black folks, to even just say the word reparations. So um, thank you for making that um, a, a campaign. Um, so let's actually hear from, um, let's hear from, from David. Um, i want to hear a little bit more. Uh, actually, first let's hear from Trevor, and then we're going to hear from David, and then we're going to hear from Kelly. So Trevor, tell us about yourself. What drives your personal, professional, political passion around this work, um, and what you think is important for decision makers um, and the public to understand in terms of the why and the how of reparations?
9: Yes, thank you so much, AMA. Um, also thank you to the Othering and Belonging Institute for holding this space today. It is such an important space, and it is a real pleasure and honor to be here today. Uh, my name is Trevor Smith. I'm the director of Narrative Change at Liberation Ventures. We are a field catalyst and a movement support organization dedicated to supporting the reparations movement. So as I said, it is an honor to do this work and build on the legacy of so many people from Belinda Sutton, who sued her former enslaver for restitution and won, to Queen Mother Moore, who traveled the country to receive over a million signatures from black folk in support of reparations. This is a long movement, a movement that is older than the United States itself. I am also here because of the lives that we have lost that are in my heart every day. Uh, Trayvon Martin, who was the same age as me when he was brutally murdered, um, who I was the same age as him when he was brutally murdered, Alton Alton Sterling, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Emmett Till. The list goes on and on. So all of those folks um, whose lives were lost, in my eyes, were lost because of our understanding and our perception of blackness. Our narrative about blackness and how, as as the way Dawn put it, has always thought to dehumanize black people and solidify the racial hierarchy that has always existed in the United States. So I am here in service of everyone who I named and the brilliant folks all over the country, including my good friend, Jean-Pierre, who are leading the charge on the city, state, and federal level in order to make federal reparations a reality. I'm just truly in awe of the movement And the time we are in and I'm just so glad to be a witness and hopefully a a dutiful servant. So my background is in communications, media strategy, and over the past few years I've been focused on the topic of narrative change. So I was very uh, gratefully tapped uh, by Dr. Darity a couple of years ago to write a chapter that explored how anti-black stereotypes have played a role in blocking wealth creation in the labor market and the housing market for black people. I looked at the ways in which media conglomerates have profited off of anti-black stereotypes from the minstrel show era to today, and then now have profited off of black culture once they can no longer directly profit off of anti-blackness. So what I would want legislatures, policymakers to know is that reparations is a process. A process, in my eyes, that should include financial and non-financial components much like we've seen in other countries. Reparations, in my eyes, must transform and shift how we perceive black people in society. The work of reparations is also the work of reshaping national memory. Reparations is an economic project, let's be really clear about that. We should close the black-white wealth gap. But I also wanna be really clear to policymakers, to legislatures, to anyone listening, that reparations is also a political and cultural project. And that's why I'm so focused on the topic of narrative change and really excited to be here. Thanks.
6: Thank you. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate that piece about reshaping national memory. It's so that we we don't have to have folks hesitating to even say the word reparations. David, tell us about your background and, and answer the same question.
10: Thank you, Alma, and, and I'm honored to be here and awed by the panelists with whom I've joined. And I wanna thank the OBI for in letting reparation generation spend some time today sharing a little bit about our project and reparations in real time. To understand my passion for this, I need to share a little bit about my story. I was born and raised in San Rafael, California, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge in a white community that was segregated by design. I grew up in the 1960s and 70s within a small, strong Jewish community with a privileged middle-class life. I genuinely am proud of my family's stories and successes. And for much of my life, I felt my story and that of my families embodied the Horatio Alger myth that anyone through hard work intelligence and virtuous life can achieve the American dream. I came to Berkeley in 1978 and I stayed. But over the years of living in the city and working on many different projects, both civic and local, within the diverse egalitarian mythology of Berkeley, I realized it was not true. Oscar Grant and Eric Gardner, Michelle Alexander, Isabella Wilkerson, and ta Coates started me on a new course of learning. I began unpacking the more complete story of America, re-examining some of my family's mythology, painfully deconstructing some of my subconscious beliefs regarding Jewish exceptionalism and deconstructing my own progressive liberalism. Ultimately recognizing that the system of white affirmative action that had privileged me, my family and the generations that look like me. As I saw more police murders, listened to more ridiculous history deniers and watched events like Charlottesville, feelings were building. And then Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So many emotions, so much confusion. I continued to read and write and circled and reflected on justice repair, redemption, renewal, trying to find a path forward. However, what really got me to act was my adult daughter. She was sitting at our Sunday supper table, having just been to a BLM demonstration in Oakland. An interested father, I was sitting, asking all kinds of questions as I often do, but she just looked at me. She didn't say a thing. She didn't have to. Her look communicated everything. So dad, for all your progressive talk, for all your disgruntled upset, for all your hand-waving, what the hell are you going to do? She basically called me out and rightly so. If you've ever had children, you know what that feels like. I basically fell from grace. So what do I want my fellow Americans and legislators to understand? I'm going to speak because I have much better policy people here than me. I'm just going to speak to my fellow white Americans. And I would like to share something that was shared with me regarding the fundamental truth about American chattel slavery and its afterlife vestiges, best expressed by Amos Wilson, the theoretical psychologist and Pan-African thinker, when he said, justice requires not only the ceasing and desisting of injustice, but also requires either punishment or reparations for injuries and damages inflicted by prior wrongdoing. If restitution's not made and reparations not instituted to compensate for prior injustices, those injustices are in effect rewarded. And the benefits of such rewards will continue to draw interest. I'll say that again, they continue to draw interest, to be reinvested and to be passed on to their children. Consequently, injustice and inequality will be maintained across the generations, as will their deleterious social, economic, and political outcomes. Over the next 20 to 30 years, as me and my generation pass, we will be leaving 70 trillion, with a T, dollars. America and all Americans will benefit from the redistribution of this wealth, with a major portion being redirected into the inner generation of Black Americans who have been denied the opportunity to grow their wealth. So what drives my passion and my work comes back to my children and future generations. America right now is a place of brokenness, of anger and hatred and xenophobia and terrible injustice. I see it. You all see it. And we know that this is totally rooted in the discussion of today. I'm passionate about this work because my legacy and the legacy to my children is not about money. It has to be about America. An America where we feel we know each other more and fear each other less. An America where there's less anger and violence and much more celebration. And an America where we reach out to lift each other up so we can flourish and thrive, not out of guilt, not out of charity, but out of a shared vision of creating that more perfect union that has been promised. Again, thank you for having me.
6: Thank you, David. Um, really appreciate hearing uh, the role that your daughter and um, our children play. Um, you know. Uh, My daughter, who's a fifth grader in Los Angeles Unified School District, we've been talking a lot about critical race theory um, because they have to do a better job (laughs) at their school. And um, she said, what's the difference between critical race theory and the truth? And I was like, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Um, So from the mouths of babes, they they will keep us honest, the children, let them lead. Um, So with that, I want to turn to Kelly, who has done incredible work. Um, She is a genealogist. How do you uh, think about this work? What animates your passion around this work, and what do you want to make sure decision makers uh, understand about the who, the how of reparations? Yes, well,
11: I will answer those questions. Thank you so much for having me. I am so grateful to be a part of this discussion today. And I would like to extend a heartfelt thank you to the Othering and Belonging Institute for inviting me and for creating the space for us to discuss the collaborative efforts um, surrounding reparative justice movements in the United States. The most important aspect of my background, driving my passion and work for reparations, stem from the deep connection I have with my own lineage as a descendant of American chattel slavery in the Deep South, and my work as a professional genealogist, specializing in African-American ancestry. Both branches of my maternal line, grandmother and grandfather, settled Greene County, Alabama between 1819 and 1840, building the towns of Utah, Pleasant Ridge, Clinton, Union, Mantua, Bologi, and Knoxville. Alabama officially became a state in 1821. The earliest of these ancestors, Alexander, was originally born in Virginia, 1795. At the tender age of 11, he was forcibly transferred with a band of slaves to Spartanburg, South Carolina, where he was purchased by old Samuel Morrow of the 96th District. He lived in Spartanburg between the ages of 11 and 24 and had a wife and two small children there. When Samuel's son, William, decided to take advantage of land grants offered in the Alabama Territory, he took enslaved men from his father's inventory, men whose skill sets ranged from bricklaying to blacksmithing. Alexander was one of those men. After arriving in Greene County, he had more than 26 children and was married more than five times. He was 70 years old when he was freed from slavery in 1865 and 72 when he was included on the voter registration list. In 1880, he can be found living in the same slave quarters he built in a town his labors grew. And I know for a fact that none of the street names that bear the name Morrow or the buildings or landmarks are referring to him. Through the generations of Alexander came his son William, called Buck, born 1855 the two of them transforming in distinction and title from enslaved to freedmen. Buck's daughter, Keely Ann, born 1873, her son, Percy Thompson Morrow, born 1894, his daughter, Ann Morrow, my grandmother, born 1919, her daughter, Marie Hicks, born 1948, and me, Kelly, born in 1977. While the Emancipation Proclamation physically freed Alexander and his son, It would be another 100 years that the Civil Rights Acts were passed, making me the first generation of Alexander's descendants, born with the same rights and privileges as white Americans. By that estimation, freedom as it was imagined and described to Alexander was just offered 57 years ago making this conversation centered around reparative justice for the descendants of American chattel slavery, very timely. Professionally, I spent 17 years as a financial advisor working for Fortune 500 banking institutions throughout Northern California, and I'm also currently now working as a professional genealogist, having demonstrated my civil rights at my prior prior employment. As an advisor, I witnessed firsthand the disparate treatment of African American clients and employees. And in 2017, I along with five other colleagues spread throughout the country, led a class action lawsuit on behalf of Black financial advisors at JP Morgan Securities for its disparate treatment of the class. From that lawsuit, other abuses were discovered. In 2019, a New York Times article entitled, This is What Racism Looks Like in Banking, highlighted the experiences of both African-American clients and employees at the bank, which prompted the United States Senate, led by Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, Robert Menendez, Catherine Cortez, and Chris Van Holen to specifically write CEO Jamie Dimon to ask what he was doing about the racism and disparate treatment discovered in his banking system. After uncovering those injustices, I left the banking industry and went back to my original love of genealogy. I have helped over 75 African-American families retrace their roots to the deepest parts of the Southern United States. And in doing so, I have realized that that is still the greatest sin that this country has yet to solve, the fact that our ancestors were never given the freedom that the Civil War pretended them to have. And as a result of my experiences in activism and helping African Americans trace their genealogy, I was asked to come to the AB 3121 discussion about genealogy when it comes to repairing that group and I gave testimony that explained that it is absolutely possible for African Americans that descend from American chattel slavery to trace their ancestry back, to show that they are indeed a part of this system. And from that work, I am now working with Reparation Generation, who has a similar system where they are trying to help the descendants of, of, of American chattel slavery realize wealth through transfer grants and reparative transfers. We are also helping them uncover their genealogies and history. I would like legislators to understand that we are not talking about ancient history, and that we need to start in a very serious way, rectifying the harms that slavery has caused in the United States. And from that rising tide, all
6: all votes will be listed. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kelly. Um, so you know Kelly's work has been um, very informative and helpful to the to the California task force. Uh, so I want to turn to you, Don. Give us an update. What has happened? Um, what what has been the process and the next steps? Um, what are you proud of? What have we learned? And what are you? Um, you know, what if anything might be new and totally uncharted territory that we are trailblazing?
7: Well, it's all uncharted territory. I mean, we're doing this for the first time um, in in many ways. Uh, Kelly gave terrific testimony of the task for the task force and AMA. Thank you for your work and the listening sessions. So, the background of the legisl- legislative bill are are as follows. Um, on the 25th of May, 2020, uh, George Floyd's murder captured in a horrific 9 minutes and 29 seconds of video triggered the largest protests in American history. So by September of the same year, 2020, the legislature passed Secretary Shirley Weber's bill creating the California Reparations Task Force to study and develop reparations proposals for African Americans. Five members were appointed by Governor Newsom and four were appointed by the legislature. The law requires the task force to, one, document by June of 2022 the harm of enslavement and the racial hatred and bias that the institution wrought, and to, by June of 2023, make recommendations to the legislature as to what the repairs should be The California Department of Justice Civil Rights Division has staffed this effort tremendously, I have to say, assigning dozens of staffers to support the task force, including, I'm told, some 30 attorneys and assorted PhDs and experts, um, as well as uh, others to assist the process. With respect to the first task, on June 1, 2022, The task force published a sweeping almost 500 page report drawing a through line from the harm of 250 years of enslavement, the racial terror and Jim Crow exclusion to follow and decades more of continuing discrimination resulting in today's outcomes which are at once shocking but not surprising and Trevor and and, uh, Jean-Pierre and and David touched a little bit upon that. America is as segregated today as it was in the 1940s. The wholesale exclusion of African Americans from equal education, employment, the benefits of the New Deal, federally insured loans, access to the suburban residential housing and other opportunities that created America's middle class has resulted in white households having nine times the assets of black households, as Jean-Pierre talked about, and huge disparities that persist in housing, houselessness, the administration of criminal justice, public health, and in almost every aspect of American life that matters. California is the first state to shine a light on the cumulative and compounding consequences of this multigenerational harm. The task force is now facing, I would say, its most daunting challenge. And that is to say, recommending what should be done that effort uh, of defining reparations began on september twenty third and twenty fourth just a few days ago in Los Angeles, in which a uh, hearing uh, was held focusing on this direction that the task force now has to has to undertake. The next hearing will be held in Oakland in mid December uh, and then throughout uh, the beginning of 2023, culminating in a report on uh, the recommendations for repair, which the task force must submit by June of 2023. So that's that's just a quick update on what we're doing.
6: Thank you, Don. Um, there are some some great um, perspectives and, and shout outs that I'm seeing in the, in the chat. Um, for our next question, um, we're going to adjust time just a little bit um, because there's so much to there's so much to share. Um, the question is um, really for uh, Trevor, Jean Pierre, Kelly, and, and David. Um, tell us about your organization's current reparations work, what you're learning, and that particularly what you're learning that can help support the reparations movement, right nationally, um, and um, Uh, Sorry, and and what, excuse me, so the question is, how do you see solidarity and bridging um, in in your work? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Let me go back. (laughs) The question is, um, tell us what your organization is learning, um, and that can help support the movement, and then what, if anything, might be um, uncharted territory or not? So that's the question, Um, and we'll first um, hear from Trevor.
9: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Liberation Ventures, as I mentioned, is a field builder supporting the movement for reparations. We have a comprehensive view of reparations that falls into four buckets, a four-part four framework. Um, and it pulls from various frameworks throughout the movement, um, the United Nations and, and other folks who have um, put out their thoughts and their ideas on what reparations could look like. Ours is, again, four parts, redress, reckoning, accountability, and acknowledgement. And we say that the country has to go through this Framework this cycle um, continuously to build a culture of repair. So that's kind of our North, our North Star is Federal Comprehensive Reparations. and We believe that Federal Comprehensive Reparations looks like redress, it looks like reckoning, it looks like accountability, and it looks like acknowledgement over and over and over again to create a culture of repair. So that's kind of our vision. What the work looks like um, also falls into four buckets. Uh, funding, supporting, connecting, and framing. So in terms of funding, we try to um, shift dollars to the movement. Um, so we uh, raise dollars and we, grant, and we re-grant them out. So we got our first round of funding out last year to 13 amazing organizations who are working across the country to build power around reparations. Organizations um, such as INCOBRA, the longest um, legacy uh, advocacy organization on the topic of reparations in the country. Organizations like NARC that are full of um, great... Experts can um, being convened by Dr. De- uh, Dr. Ron Daniels um, and have put out their own ten-point framework. Organizations like Where Is My Land that have, that is doing great work across the country um, to, to help Black folks who had their land stolen recover it. Um, organizations like First Repair, founded like founded by Robin Rue Simmons, the former Alderwoman in Evanston, um, who proposed the bill in Evanston that eventually got off the that got past the finish line. She. I uh, founded an organization called First Repair that tries to help cities and localities think about how they might um, go about doing the local reparations effort. Um, one of my, one of my uh, an organization that's dear in my heart, the amendment project here based in New York City um, that is organizing young people across the country um, on college campuses and off of college campuses around the, the topic of reparations. So we funded um, some great, great organizations um, and, and hope to do more grant making in the future. Um, So that's the funding, Um, supporting. We try to help folks beyond the dollars um, with strategy support, development support, communication support. People have been doing this work for for centuries, um, for decades, and it's usually been uncompensated. Folks have had to make do um, with what they had um, and, and then advocate and organize around reparations on the side. Um, so we, we do try to help folks in non-financial ways as well, trying to provide technical assistance that usually falls in the bucket of strategy support, development support, communication support. Connecting. Um, we try to connect organizations throughout the movement. We are seeing a resurgence of the reparations movement, and I get to meet great organizations every single day. Um, so we try as much as we can to hold spaces like these. We hold learning communities so folks can make connections, learn from each other, and see where strategies overlap. And then framing, which is where my work falls under. We really try to frame the conversation about reparations. Um, And as I talked about earlier, um, not only just reparations, but about blackness, because blackness has for so long been seen as undeserving in this country. And so our goal on the narrative change side is to build narrative power throughout the reparations ecosystem. And we define narrative power as the ability to tell stories that shift mental models, cultural mindsets, and ultimately culture. So really, we we're really thinking about what are the narratives that we're up against as a movement and hope and holding the space in our first initiative called the Reparations Narrative Lab to really dream and imagine um, and think and name the narratives that we want to see out in the world. And then once we name those narratives we want to see out in the world, how can we organize around them to tell stories and so that folks throughout the movement, folks who um, want to come into the movement, can tell stories to their respective audiences and shift those mental models. And and so, a stat that I think really illuminates kind of the essence of our work, um, recently Pew Research put out um, some polling of black people, of black America, and they found that 76% of black people support reparations, but only 63% believe that it will happen in their lifetime. So, there's a huge hope gap. There's a lack of hope that reparations will happen in this country for the very people who it will happen for. But we have to inspire that hope. We have to tell stories of how black people have thrusted this country forward time and time again. We have to tell stories of solidarity. We have to tell stories of how reparations have happened for other groups. And that is how we know that it is possible for black people. And so I am, again, so inspired about the work that I'm seeing across the country with folks changing narratives, the work Jean-Pierre is doing, um, just at the very name of the coalition, Say the Word, uh, the work in California by groups like NAST, who we also funded in our first round, and CJEC, who are getting the word out and organizing and bringing awareness to the issue of, uh, to the issue of reparations for folks who might, otherwise, uh, might not otherwise know about it. The work in Evanston, Illinois, to get dollars out the door for housing and now thinking about what comes next. The work happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as they fight for reparations for the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. They're 103 years old, 104 years old, 105 years old. They deserve justice yesterday. And so all the while, you're building power and shifting how the public thinks about reparations toward a federal comprehensive reparations program. I am thinking deeply about how can we harness this and, and tell, tell stories about what is happening now, what is happening in the past, so folks can shift from thinking about why reparations and start thinking about how reparations and start envisioning and actually passing policies as we are seeing across the country um, to actually bring this to fruition.
6: Thank you, Trevor. Um, The story piece is so important um, to bringing life um, to this work, especially for folks who who need to be brought on, (laughs) need to be brought along um, and, I, and, I, and I hear the urgency in the chat. When are we going to move from conversation to actual action? Um, so Jean-Pierre, tell us about your work. Um, tell us about what you're learning, um, maybe even a little bit about how we're moving to action.
8: Sure, thank you. So as I said before, um, the Institute, New York Institute for Social Justice, we are leading a multiracial Uh, racially diverse uh, multi-faith coalition called say the word reparations and why is it called say the word well you've got important people in New Jersey who have asked why not call it a wealth disparity task force or even a black lives matter task force right everything but reparations and we want to focus on reparations because part of it is that simply people are just ignorant of the history of slavery in New Jersey there's a lack of awareness of the role of slavery in New Jersey how it played a part. And at the Institute, part of the work that we do is we issue reports about current inequality in New Jersey. And what we do is we link the current inequality in New Jersey. So things like our report, closing the $300,000 racial wealth gap in New Jersey, making the two New Jerseys one, or black home ownership matters. We link that to the history of slavery in New Jersey. If you want to find out more about the Say the Word campaign, please go to njisj.org forward slash say the word, right? And you'll find out more information about current inequality in New Jersey and how that emerged from slavery in New Jersey and its aftermath, right? The reorganization of white supremacy after the ending of slavery and after the end of Reconstruction, right? There was Jim Crow in New Jersey. There were basically administrative covenants. There was redlining, right? One of the significant aspects of the GI Bill, right? We understand the GIA bill to have subsidized the white middle class. At the same time, it was barred from Black people throughout the United States, particularly in northern New Jersey and in New York. So when Black soldiers went abroad to fight for the double V, fight against fascism in Europe and come back to the United States to take and fight against fascism here at Jim Crow, they were barred from gating or being part of the benefits of the GI Bill. So 67,000 soldiers um, who participated in World War II, fought in World War II, were eligible for the GI Bill in Northern New Jersey and New York, but, less, but yet less than 100 of those who benefited were black people, right? So, and the GI Bill was significant in, in sustaining and creating a middle class, right? So that's one significant aspect. But part of our work on the State of War of Reparations, all right, is public education, but also advocacy. Where we're, we're, we are organizing for a reparations task force bill to have, one, a conversation in New Jersey about, about slavery and reparations, particularly a time when we know there is a pernicious attempt right, to attack things like critical race theory or the study of slavery or race in the United States. And then, two, to have a discussion about how we would repair those harms. And, you know, my wonderful panelists have talked about how when the U.S. has focused on and invested in black people, it has helped everyone. Right? I think that gets overlooked many a time right because reparation is seen as being a specific thing or as limited but it's not right it's going to have a profound effect yes it's, it's focused on black people' That's what reparation is about repairing the specific harms but in doing so as the great civil rights lawyer and professor Lonnie Lanier pointed out uh, black people are the canary in the coal mine once you help black people that's going to have a profound effect on the rest of the united States so part of our work in the state the work say the word campaign is to discuss that, articulate that, so what have we done? We've made phone calls to our legislators, we've texted them, we've set up meetings, right? Over 12,000 tweets and phone calls have been made by members of our coalition. Also gotten 19 of the 20 members of Legislative Black Caucus to co-sponsor the bill. The primary sponsor of the bill is the head of Legislative Black Caucus. We've gotten the Senate Majority Leader to co-sponsor the bill, right? And we know this is a long process. This, this doesn't happen overnight and we're trying to get a majority of the members of, the, of, the, of both houses to support the bill. And we're following in, thankfully, California's footsteps. Right? California has charted a path, and hopefully New Jersey can follow and be the second state in the country to do so. And so upcoming, we have, we'll be holding a briefing for legislators and their staff to inform them of the contents of the bill, because you'd be surprised about how many legislators simply don't know what's in the bill. They don't know that the bill is what designed to do And I'll I'll lay out for you some of what's in the bill. It's designed to study slavery in New Jersey. That's the main thing. And come up with solutions, right, to repair the harm. So it will examine the extent to which the state of New Jersey and the federal government prevented, opposed, or restricted efforts of enslaved African people and their descendants to economically thrive upon the ending of slavery. It will examine the lingering negative effects of slavery on living black people in New Jersey. It will make recommendations for what remedies should be awarded, through instrumentalities and to whom those remedies should be awarded. It will hold six public meetings across the state, including in Newark, the largest state, the largest city, and in Camden in Atlantic City. And part of what we've done also as part of the state of work campaign is we've gotten 13 councils to pass resolutions in support of this task force to show that there's support at the local level for this. So so Newark and Jersey City the two largest cities in New Jersey have passed resolutions in support of this task force bill. Now the bill number is A938 or S386 if you're interested in finding out more about the bill. All right, but you, one of the things that's you know, may, maybe not so surprising is how ignorant people are of one, the history of slavery in New Jersey, and then B, for uh, legislators not to be aware of what's in the bill. All right, those two things. And so there's a lot of public education that needs to be happened, things to happen, a lot of public outreach, a lot of explaining, of what's going on, of some people are, you know, starting from far behind. But also what I've learned is that when, once people are aware and they learn, they're willing, once they're willing to have the conversation, they're willing to change their minds, right? I've learned to give some people benefit of the doubt in the sense that once they are remedied of their of their ignorance or their lack of knowledge, they are willing to shift. And so we do have a broadening of our coalition, um, which is wonderful. We have members from, uh, diverse members, faith allies from multiple faiths who are part of our coalition who drive the work that we do. Um, And I think it's important that, you know, we continue to push um, this public education aspect, the work that we're doing here to inform people about the kinds of inequalities that are currently in New Jersey. Right. And that stem from the historical legacy of slavery in New Jersey. Maybe some of you don't don't know that New Jersey was the last state in the North to abolish slavery. It only, only adopted the 13th Amendment after it had been ratified.
4: Mm-hmm. New Jersey
8: created a racialized system of, of, of distributing land when it first was created as a colony in which white settlers were given 150 acres of land when they settled and then an additional 150 acres of land for each enslaved person that they owned. New Jersey was the only slave state in the North to support the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. Right? So those who were enslaved, who self-emancipated and fled to the North, Right, and engage in this kind of form of black freedom, this black subjectivity. Going to New Jersey was not a place, you know, an inviting place because you could easily be sent back into enslavement because of the so New Jersey support for the federal system black. Mm-hmm. And so these things, you know, legislators don't know. And so, you know, if you ask an, an average New Jerseyan, did they learn about slavery as students in New Jersey? So that's part of the work that we're doing. That's part of, you know, the project that we're engaging, getting people to say the word reparations, that it's not a scary word, right? And that reparations, for Black people, is going to have a profound effect on the rest of the United States, right, and shift this country um, mm-hmm. in a very positive direction. I like, so I think that's part of you know the work that we're doing, and it's a, it's a long battle. To as Trevor pointed out, there are many people before us that have come, and you know California, as, as Don laid out, is leading the way, and hopefully New Jersey will follow in those footsteps.
6: Thank you, Jean Pierre. Um, so let's hear from uh, David, and then Kelly. Um, Again, the question is, what are you learning? Um, you know, what's your organization focused on? What are, you, what are you learning? Is anything uncharted territory? And if so, what is?
10: Alma, thank you again. And and I'm just, again, inspired by, by our panelists and, and what they're working on. Um, I'm going to walk you through a little bit about reparation generations model and our current work, because we are actually making reparative justice payments in real time, and so uh, Where We are a model that is trying to gather information that may be useful, whether it's to Jean-Pierre or to Trevor or to other organizations that are trying to push forward on reparative justice um, and allow them to use the information we're, we're, that we're gaining as we actually make reparative transfers of wealth. So if I could have, I created a, a, a quick slide that will demonstrate conceptually how reparation generation works. So if someone could put that slide up, that'd be great. So the, the idea for reparation generation is very simple, which is we are gathering white transfers of wealth from white Americans, corporations, and foundations, and putting it into the bucket that we call reparation generation. We have in the middle there a fiduciary and fiscal sponsor, which is a, an incubator of social change agents called Multiplier. Our black board has made decisions on how the wealth transfers will be enacted, and that then gets filtered out through community investment uh, into individual hands as wealth transfers to black Americans. Thank you. We can take that down. But the image you see is a basic model of our citizen led reparative transfer model. It shows our intention to raise money for reparative transfers from white Americans, corporations and foundations and tra- pass these through to black Americans who are descended from American child slavery. Our black founders lead the programming decisions while white founders hold responsibility for fundraising. The early decisions of our black founders was to focus on the wealth transfers for building pursuits of wealth through home ownership, education and entrepreneurship or business. What's a reparative transfer? This term was developed to describe financial contributions to reparation generation. Reparative transfers are not donations, they're not charity and they're not gifts. While we understand the importance of philanthropy in advancing valuable programs and causes, making a reparative transfer is a conscious and intentional acknowledgement of our history, of our wrongs and a moral payment. It's a way to reconcile the ways an individual corporation or foundation may have benefited intentionally or unintentionally from slavery and the ongoing vestiges of our structural systems. Reparative transfers are to be made to all black Americans, descendants of formerly enslaved people, regardless of their income status. Reparative transfer contributions and reparative transfer grant recipients are all valuable co-learners and co-truth tellers and co-creators in our model. Other core values for reparation generation include a lot of what Trevor mentioned, which are the principles that the UN Council, the the UN came forth with in regards to reparations. It includes truth, justice, racial healing, and of course, as many other organizations say, the the commitment to non-repeat. These are all parts of our model. All Americans will experience a positive individual and societal benefit from racial wealth equity. This is something that policymakers are advocating and we all believe and our model is trying to demonstrate and trying to create data to support that. Reparative transfers are not a substitute. I repeat, they are not a substitute for a comprehensive federal reparations program that must be implemented to ensure all Black American descendants of the formerly enslaved people of this country receive redress. We're a model. We're trying to demonstrate and trying to gather data. Another core value is evaluate. Evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. And we're fortunate enough to have partnered with people from UC Berkeley in creating our modeling program and our evaluation program that have helped us come to understand the impact of our intentions and make positive changes as we go back forward. As we learn, we are developing an understanding of what we call critical elements of reparations in action, or what we call Syria. If you're interested, we're happy to share what we find and we will be publishing as we go. This is very quick and I really encourage you to visit our website where we have more information on our reparative concepts and, and core principles. I have one more slide that I'd like to share with you and then I'm gonna let Kelly talk about what we're learning and the impact this might be having. So this is strictly discusses the process for which a Black American would apply and receive a reparative transfer of wealth. Our first pilot program has been modeled and implemented in Detroit. Reparation Generation's application process is made available only on our website. People learn about Reparation Generation's program through the website, through local PR campaigns, media feeds, social media platforms, as well as communications from local banks, and members of the Detroit Realtors Association, which is an affiliated member of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers. Now here, let me just mention that our first pilot project was specific to the transfer of wealth in the process of buying a home. So this was our first element. So the, uh, the receipt of a transfer grant by a recipient was predicated on the buying a home. However, it was not necessary for the purchase of a home. It was part of a wealth transfer. Uh, thank you. You can take that slide. Yeah. So this just walks through actually how they go through it. They submit an application to reparation generation. Within a very short period of time, they go to get a response from their application. If they get the green light, they then begin preparing the documents needed to uh, complete is, the home purchase. Is it? Yep. I've,
6: this is. Very important, and I want to make sure that Kelly gets um, a chance to really dig in. Yep. Um, So, Kelly, if there's any additional context you want to share on this, um, but really the floor is yours. Please share. Okay,
11: perfect.
10: That's great. Thank you, and I'll let Kelly share what we've learned.
11: Right. So, basically, um, given what David was talking about, um, I am responsible for the site committee. So, I'm responsible for the operations in Detroit. And I also help our applicants uncover their genealogies. And the first thing that we learned um, when I was invited to join Reparation Generation, it was because they needed help with applicants not being able to trace their lineage. It was a difficult um, process for them. We have a lot of millennials and uh, Gen Z people that are um, in our program is based in Detroit and they don't know their family outside of Detroit. So when I came in, I started helping them go through that genealogy journey. And every person that I've helped, we were able to uncover an enslaved ancestor and continue their application that way. Another thing that we're learning is that there's a big conversation about what reparations will eventually look like. Will it be just cash payments or will it um, have programmatic components? And from my experience in looking at our applicants and the applications that go through, and you'll see Bank of America also doing something similar. There has to be something done in a programmatic way that addresses the fact that most of the wealth building tools in the United States have to do with you being able to apply for and receive a loan of some type. And that means that you have to have consistent income. You have to have great credit scores. Um, There are all of these things that are in the way of African-Americans actually being able to take the money that we give them and go and build wealth with it. So what we're noticing is that um, just in our program, cash payments by themselves, they should be coupled with programmatic relief. Um, And the third is that we, we started this process not knowing if white Americans were willing to also and in in addition to talking about the issues that we're having um in in race relations if they would fund um reparative transfers because the state of california is eventually going to ask the state whether or not this is something that they will um, contribute towards or, or that they want their tax dollars to go towards and what we found is through the house parties that that we have given in berkeley so it's a gathering of people that discuss race relations and their part and their privilege 167 patrons so far has given over five hundred thousand dollars to our efforts so we believe that it is white americans are ready um, to enter into this exercise we believe that the genealogy component is very doable and we also see that reparations should be coupled with programmatic relief as well as cash payments. Thank you.
6: Thank you, Kelly. Um, so I have one one more um, question before we um, actually turn to, to our audience because there are some um, very thoughtful, powerful perspectives shared in the chat. Um, and the question for our panelists are, uh, is um, how do you see solidarity or bridging in your work, and what impact can reparations have across other communities, particularly our um, communities of color? And I want to quote one of the um, uh, comments I see in the in the chat, which is about um, you know, what will it look like when black people can say we are made whole and reparations has been successful? Um, so I think that's a that's a powerful um, rewording of that question so solidarity, bridging um, what impact can reparations have across our communities particularly our communities of color what will it look like for black folks to be made whole by reparations Kelly let's give you the first word I to grab that
11: mute button yes um, so from my experience being made whole is three pronged. first and foremost Slavery has to be acknowledged um, as something that was wrong, that the country is apologizing for, um, and that there has to be a commitment not to let something like that happen to anyone else, um, regardless of uh, race, creed, color. And what we're doing is trying to solve this one section of harm that has never been solved before in hopes that when other when, when, when other groups are fighting for their rights, that they will use this as the springboard. They will use this as an example. Um, and I believe that that's what the civil rights movement gained for many of the groups that are now um, covered under the Civil Rights Act. And that act and the movement of that act was initiated by the descendants of American chattel slavery and so the question is how does this work affect other people of color because we're doing this work and because we are in 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 the civil rights movement we are helping others plan their course of action we are uh being an example to others and just like the civil rights movement everyone benefits in the end, even though we are specifically talking about descendants of American child slavery, the programs that are created from that are going to help everyone similarly situated. And I think it's important that we understand that and that we collaborate around that effort.
6: Thank you. Thank you, um,
7: Don. I agree with everything uh, Kelly has said. I would also add that the harm was centuries in the making. And so the remedies should be not centuries, but they should be prolonged. And that should cover not one year, two years, but, you know, prospectively going into the future. California uh, was did not enter the Union as a slave state but it was plenty complicit with the institution of slavery and Jean-Pierre you mentioned that New Jersey was uh, one of the the only northern state that passed uh, you know agreed with fug- fugitive slave laws and but California had in the, between 1850 and 1854 two two versions of its own fugitive uh, slave laws that permitted the arrest of African Americans within the Free State of California to deport them back to the South or enslave them anew. So <clears throat> nobody's clean in this story. The harm is enormous. So ultimately, California, the task force, has to figure out you know what its responsibility is and what its role. But ultimately, this has got to be a national remedy as well. And I'm hoping that a movement evolves, that it spreads with New Jersey's help and with the other um, efforts in each of the other locales, that this begins to percolate and begin to look like a national movement uh, for eventually Congress to take this up. Just to close the wealth gap alone is something like in the nature of $14 trillion, according to Professors Sterity and, and Kirsten Mullen, so um, it's daunting. So One part of the remedy certainly has to be compensation. I agree with Kelly about the other one being um, uh, programmatic, and um, all of this is going to be considered by the task force over the next year. I'll just close by finally saying, you know, as the only member of the task force who's not African American, I really feel a heavy responsibility To reach out to other communities. Um, Our story, in terms of our reparations effort, could not have been possible without allies. Um, We're a very tiny part of the population. African Americans are bigger, that population, but only 6% of California, 14% of the country. So therefore, while the remedy has to be specific to the injured harm class that we're talking about. Uh, There's an element here that I think it's important to recognize that this is a justice issue and that each time America has become more inclusive, it's actually become stronger. So I'll close with that, but principally organizing and and solidarity and allies are crucial.
6: Thank you, Don. Um, Jean-Pierre, how do you think about this question of solidarity and bridging um, and what the impact reparations um, can have on other communities, particularly communities of color, and what would it look like for Black folks to be made whole by reparations?
8: Um, that's, a, that's a very, very uh, big question. All right. I can answer it in a very quotidian, kind of mundane, pedestrian way, and then there's the way in which I think about it Right. I think the way in which we think about what the reparations will do and the repairs of the harm, we need to understand the role of slavery in its aftermath in creating uh, the U.S. and the modern world. Right. And I think sometimes we underestimate the role and the way slavery shaped and brought into being the United States, not just the economics materi- materially, but its culture, its politics, the very way in which people think of themselves, the way in which they interact with each other, the way in which they conduct themselves. Right slavery had an impact on all of those things. And so when we're talking about repairing the harms of slavery, yes, we can talk about material things, and those are incredibly important, right? $14 trillion. Right? We talk about programs. But fundamentally, you know, the activist for reparations, Kem Howard, had talked about the first reparative act of slavery was when those who were first enslaved as part of British colonialism fled, you know, right, with it was 20 people. Right? That was the first reparative act, fleeing the plantation. But in fleeing the plantation, you're not just fleeing the plantation, they are fleeing, cool fleeing the colonial order, fleeing a slave. You're going towards something else. Right? You do not That's uncharted territory that requires imagination, that requires work, and building something new. Right? And so when we're repairing the harms of slavery, it's not to just go back to the way the U.S. was before. No, we need to be more imaginative about what it is we're doing. We're creating something different. And so to say that I can tell you what it would be like for black people to be whole, right? Black people are gonna are gonna be the engine of creating something new, right? And I can't tell you what that new is gonna be, but I can tell you it's gonna be a world without racial rule, without being governed by race, without being conducting themselves and comporting themselves in certain kinds of ways. I can say that, and that will have a profound effect on people of color to also not be governed by race. That also have a profound effect on white people. And so when we think about reparations, we need to have a more visionary understanding what reparations can do because of the way slavery had a profound impact on creating the way we are today, creating our very ways of being, creating the very kinds of inequalities, the very words and language that we use to conduct ourselves, the way we act, the way we talk. And so when we think about reparations, yes, we can think about it in, in quotidian and in material, and those are important, profound ways of thinking about it for sure. But what we also need to think about is what kind of work can we do with our imaginations? What can we do? We think about a different kind of being in the United States. I don't necessarily have those answers, but I can tell you when we repair the harms, we in this current moment wouldn't be able to recognize that new world, right? Because we're so affected so deeply by slavery. We don't even understand fully how deeply we are affected by it.
6: Thank you, Jean-Pierre. I've been toggling between... um you know, list, listening to our panelists and also checking in on um, really thoughtful things that are um, being shared in the comments. So I just want to encourage everybody to take a look. There are some advocacy opportunities and resources and, and great and important perspectives being shared. Um, and now I actually want to turn um, to focus on um, our public comments. Um, so the, we have a question for you all. Um, all of our um, attendees. Um, So warm up your fingers if you haven't typed in the chat yet. We want you to. Um, And the question is, what would you most want reparations to accomplish? What would you most want reparations to accomplish? If you had to pick one or two, what is the most important thing that reparations at the end of the day accomplish And while you're typing your thoughts in the chat, we're going to play, we're going to bring Mini back on. We're going to play a little music. And when we when we fade the music, then it's time for us to come back. And our panelists are going to react to what they have read in the chat. we much richness in in the chat right now. Um, So I want to turn to our panel, turn back to our panel. You've had a chance to read um, some of what has been shared, right? We asked people to distill it down to like what is most important to accomplish. Um, And for your closing remarks, I want you to speak to what you're seeing from our people in the chat. um, And then what is the most important action you really want everyone to consider taking um, to advance reparations. And let's uh, start first with Don, and then we'll turn to you, Kelly. Don, you're on mute.
7: Sorry. Reading the chat, I mean, all of these things are tremendously important and worthy. Um, How do do we accomplish this? can't do it without creating the political will at a legislative level. The remedies that need to be done are legislative remedies, both at the state level for all the states, but most importantly at federal level. And in order to do that, at least, you know, in my experience, going through one, one of the more modern times, repar- reparations. It's a political organizing education effort, and programs like this certainly do that, but they should we need to amplify them, you know, exponentially. Um, I think the other piece of it is, beyond closing the wealth gap and housing and specific things, one of the things we learned in our movement was the restoration of identity. And that is, has to do with acknowledgement of the wrong, um, to shine a light on buried and erased history that is a subject of willful amnesia. I mean, the fact that we're just learning about, uh, we're in the mainstream press, like the Wall Street, uh, uh, Washington Post and the New York Times, covering Tulsa and Greenwood over 100 years after the fact is just a testament to how erased this is, and one of the things that we learned in compiling the interim report is that history is littered with greenwoods and Tulsa's. It happened all over the place, (laughs) so um, there has to be a massive education program in addition to all of the tangible things that have to do with compensation and restitution and closing the wealth gap and so on. I just close by saying these comments are helpful as the task force goes into its next and most important phase of determining what the reparations might be with respect to its recommendations. I'll close there.
6: Thank you, Don. Kelly, I want to turn to you. Yes. So um, in looking at the chat,
11: there were a lot of questions about what type of programs and what programmatic relief would look like in my Estimation, And I believe that something that has to do with land, land granting, homesteading, home ownership, um, because that is the number one wealth-creating tool in the United States, and money does not solve that, um, and I believe that that has to be on the table. I think it would be wonderful if the descendants of American chattel slavery, because of our... Um, are free labor, that perhaps something could be written in the tax code in California where there's some exemption that's given to the descendants of American chattel slavery for paying income taxes on their income in the state. Um, Those are the types of programs that I think um, can happen in a legislative setting like Don is expressing that um, individuals cannot um, recreate or uh, address uh, systemic harms that were caused by a country. So it's very important that our legislators are on board with what we are talking about and that they are in line with redressing the harms. Um, what have we learned in Detroit? We have learned that programs are important, um, that just giving money, just giving $25,000, that can be gone in a year. And like Don expressed, whatever uh, payments, monetary, programmatic—it should be generational. It shouldn't just be something that can dissipate in a year. Um, but thank you for the comments, and I appreciate um, being able to talk to talk to you all today.
6: Mm. Thank you, Kelly. Um, Trevor, what are you seeing that you really want to react to, respond to in the chat, and what is the call to action you want to offer our audience?
9: Yes. Um, I'll lift up uh, Grace's comment Um, she said given centrality given the centrality of slavery to the development of U.S. racial capitalism how can reparations address systemic roots of racism and of key U.S. institutions and I think this is exactly uh, the point Jean-Pierre was making Um, I see reparations as a world making process and if we look at reparations as a world making process building this new world then we have to go to the root of the issues and when you go to the root and you see that slavery is at that root and you also see that settler colonialism is at that root. So reparations then is a decolonial process, right? That reparations is uprooting the colonial state that is the United States, right? And so to speak to the question that we got asked earlier, uh, solidarity between communities, whenever I talk to the indigenous community, I'm just amazed at, 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 in the ways in which that they um, advocate and support uh, black reparations while still also talking about and advocating for their own um, land reparations. And these two things can coexist and they have coexisted over time. And so to me, reparations is about closing the black-white wealth gap because the black-white wealth gap is the the biggest indicator of the cumulative effects of slavery and anti-black racism. But it's also about more than that, as I touched on earlier, it's a political and cultural project, transforming the systems, dismantling U.S. racial capitalism, as Grace pointed out. And then really, as Jean-Pierre pointed out, envisioning a new future, a new country that has really rewritten and lived up to these values that it espoused in the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. It wrote this. It wrote this Declaration of Independence, but it has never actually lived up to the words that they wrote in that document. So reparations is actually tearing up that document and rewriting something new. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh,
6: David, what are you seeing in the chat um, that you really want to respond to? And what's your call to action? Uh,
10: well, first, I, again, thank you for including us. And I'm really inspired by the, the conversation today and the intelligence of our audience. Uh, I, I'm drawn to all the conversation about the the issue of truth, justice, and equality. And um, I think my call to action is something that we're doing in Reparation Generation, which is we're having House meetings where we're calling in individuals uh, who have lived a privileged life to have this conversation about their truth, which has given them that privilege, and that they wish to seek justice. And continuing to gather more and more voices because, as Don said, this is a legislative process. But the legislature will not move forward without enough voices to kick their butt and make them move. And that's the truth of how legislation happens. And so I feel that we need to gather our voices in this forum today and other forums such as house meetings. We need to build a movement and, uh, and we have to practice saying that word. Hmm. Thank you.
6: Speaking of saying the word, Jean-Pierre, let's give you the last word. Um, what are you seeing that, that you want to react to and what is your call to action for us today?
8: Sure, there is there is a lot of great um, uh, stuff. I would say, I'm not, I hope I'm pronouncing this, I think it's Meg Red Yellow, you know, broad scale economic justice. I don't think it's possible to really do reparations for black folks in the U.S. without destroying a lot of harmful enterprises that hurt our communities, right? And I think, you know, Trevor touched upon this, I touched upon this earlier, um, you know, the building of something new. But I do think, you know, to Don's point, um, this is a legislative process, right? And we need to organize and build power, but also um, we need to have conversations, everyday conversations with our neighbors, continuing these conversations we have here, because we do have to show that there's political will, there's every will from everyday people to, ha- to put pressure on the legislature to get this done, because stuff that's done at the local level and the state level is really to inform what can happen at the national level, the legislative level. And that's where the true kind of change that we want to see will happen around operations. And I also want people to think um, and to retain their imaginations, right? Because part of changing the narrative is having imagination to create and articulate an alternative, but also um, when facing power, power is, the, is really when you're, you're down you're at your most uh, weakest, is when you can't think of any other possibilities. And so when you always retain the possibility that there can be something different, and that we can continue to push for reparations even when we're facing um, challenges. I just hope that you know, those listening and the people that you talk to you always retain that kind of hope because pushing against power is a lot of work, and we're organizing for power, and we want to shift relations of power, and so hold on to your imaginations. Because remember, and I, I bring this, this is why I brought the Haitian Revolution at the beginning. It was considered unimaginable when it happened, but it was the people who, who were enslaved who had their own notion of freedom not the freedom of the masses, but their own notion, and that spread throughout the Americas. Mm. So hold on to your your, your your imagination.
6: Thank you, Jean-Pierre and all of our panelists and everybody who showed up and shared um, in the chat uh, today. This was powerful. Um, you know, Jean-Pierre talked about imagination, um, and so I think it's fitting that we close out with a poem, so anybody that is able to stay and listen to this piece, you will be blown away. Um, uh, so let's play a, um, a recorded poem by Ilandra um, Brazel and Shaday Johnson. I hope I pronounced those beautiful names correctly, um, but we're gonna let the last word be poetry. Thank you all.
5: In 1843, this is life for black women, the story of our grandma and her mom and our great-great-grandmother hide in the bruises on their back. Each scar marks a point in their history that keep them locked up in their vibrato. No wonder these stories get a little shaky. I know nothing but this field. I've never met rest, what he looked like. I'm the true definition of cotton. Models. My hands bleed what I pick. It reeks through my skin. Ever watch your own flesh hang? I got wounds where God don't live. I sit here with the sun on my back and my stomach empty. Full of nothing like pages of a book. Me and mine can never read. Only thing I ever had is God and he don't talk back. I pray he knows my name. Little no, black don't shine here. No, the only thing they don't be is my shadow. I submit. I believe in hell. I, I believe, believe in I'm already, already here. here. It is 1962 and I'm watching my own Kenzie grab my secret recipes to bulging white stomachs, white fight just to become housemaids, just to clean up crimson and blackberry juice, just to attend lynching picnics, always becoming a part of brunch. Black women take care of white families, sit them down at a dinner table and feed them her autonomy. Her anatomy says all she's good for is cooking. Have you ever seen a Negro prepare a revolution for dinner? These white folks treat me like they thread. Like these hands ain't the only reason they feel so pretty. Only reason they see the ain't hanging out to dry. I wash black blood out of white shirts. My old lady raised me to raise white hoods. Why raise kids that don't even know they ain't supposed to like me? I ain't been, been home in so long. long. My babies don't even remember what my voice sound like. And I'm still here putting food in the racist belly. Woman in me knows how to sweep things under the rug. Black in me knows what being something under the rug feels like. It is 2017 and Slavery is not over, but has adapted a covert cover. Hovers over. Welcome to post-traumatic slave syndrome. The exchange system will be trade auction-like device. but bidding farewells well to fathers on factory time. Black men are still on the market to buy the strange fruit. Doesn't fall too far from the tree. Our people lay right under it in streets. Do you think I care about what my ancestors went through? I got white men taking care of me. Now that, ain't that that's what Martin thought for? Him. I don't need to read to know that we used to be slaves. I grew up praying for a dime. Now my son's got Jesus on their necks. What if you grow up believing me for a jail cell like, like his, his father, father did? Is. I can't watch his name fade into a number because, because it's a mother's job to protect her son. But how can you stand in front of an entire gun range? I break chains all by myself. <laughs> Won't let my freedom ride in hell. Freedom, freedom, I can't move. Freedom, cut me loose. We are not just slaves. Three-fifths of, of sin. sin. Only America can get race in the sky. making it all recognizable. so different that we don't even notice. We're still a target.
4: Yeah. Yeah.